0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Hello friends, we're going to talk about the modern day pharmacist and the plight in this country on burnout, access, empathy, and just relationships that matter. The sommeliers, the baristas of healthcare, the most trusted people who work in the space are the pharmacists. And joining me today is Dr. Edelisa Martin a PharmD, the first in her family to graduate from college the first African-American to receive a doctor of pharmacy degree from the University of Oklahoma's College of Pharmacy, she has an extraordinary story to tell. Having spent over 25 years in the life science industry, including 20 years as a national clinical executive for pharma, she branched out on her own and is now the CEO of m and V Sciences, a minority women-owned technology firm, supporting the life science companies in their space to drive innovation In patient recruitment, decentralized trials, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. One might say that this is the same song over and over again, but today's conversation is very real. There's a lot to be said for where we find solace and trust in medications and just navigating the nonsense of things like pharmacy benefits and copay assistance and pre-authorizations and syllables that just drive us crazy. Well, all that and more today with Dr. Edelisa Martin. Enjoy the show. Now, I can call you Dr. Martin, but you have a really cool first name. Can you explain it, Edelisa?
0: Yes. So, Edelisa, I'm named after my father. His name was Eddie Lee, and I'm Eddie Lisa. So, it's really... Funny because I have two older brothers and neither of them are named Eddie. So they saved it for the girl.
1: <laughs> That's certainly interesting.
0: I, I, it, be, it was very fitting because if there was ever a definition of a daddy's girl, I was it. So <laughs> I've always loved it.
1: With my daughter turning uh, 13 next week, uh, I don't think I can have a sweeter daddy's girl. <laughs> 13. Yeah, I I have twins. I'm an in vitro dad. So um, it's an interesting story how I was able to become a biological parent with all the cancer crap in my backstory. But yeah, we got twins, born a girl. And uh, yep, she's daddy's little girl. And I'm living in the palm of her hand every day.
0: Yes, it it doesn't end.
1: (laughs) No, it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, I always ask people that come on the show who have some kind of doctorate, whether they're the kind of doctor that can save someone on an airplane when someone says, is there a doctor in the house?
0: <laughs> I'm not that doctor, not by and training, yet- but 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 I do have my basic life support, which anybody can get that, but I have that too, so.
1: Yep, yep, exactly. Do you think people understand what D means when you see those credentials?
0: For the most part, probably not. <laughs> they understand pharmacist, but PharmD—I don't know if they understand that. But basically, it's a, a doctor of a pharmacy degree. You know, there's kind of been an evolution in pharmacy. So when I was a little girl, probably you know, all most pharmacists had a bachelor's degree in pharmacy. Well, kind of has things have evolved, and they wanted pharmacists to have more clinical understanding. The, it it kind of transitioned to the PharmD. So it used to be a time when there was a bachelor's degree and the doctor of pharmacy. And for the most part now, it's just the doctor of pharmacy degree. But I'm from the era. I had to get a bachelor's in pharmacy first. And then I went back to get my PharmD, my doctor. Of so pharmacy. they pretty
1: much consolidated everything. And thank you, 1990s, for, you know, wasting my time.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is exactly right.
1: <laughs> yep. Yep, well done college education. What, what got you into pharmacy in the first place? Is it something you would, you know, I, I want to be a pharmacist when I grow up?
0: So that's really interesting as well. And I don't think you know this about me, but I was a single mother at, a, at an early age. Um, so I had my first child when I was 18 years old. And I'm like, okay, I've got to do something that can make a good living for me and him if it's just me and him for the rest of our lives, I want to be able to support him and take care of him and and us have a good life together. So my mom was a nurse and I knew I didn't want to do that. And I always had kind of a scientific kind of math mind and was at a career fair for the University um, of Arkansas Medical Sciences and stopped by the different tables. You know, there was speech pathology and lab, you know, the, the, I can't even remember what the discipline is called that the people who analyze the samples in the lab. And I stopped and talked to the guy at the college of pharmacy table and it resonated with me. And I knew I could make a good living and take care of me and my son.
1: <laughs> Tell us about your son. What's his name?
0: Well, he's my first child. His name is Brandon, but Brandon, my older son, he went to college before he ever went to kindergarten because. I was it's it's really interesting. I think having a child at that age motivated me and put me in a different kind of headspace than my peers who were 18, 19, 20 at the time. And so I was very, very focused on completing my degree, Um, you know, completing my professional degree as well. And so Brandon, he was a, a good Little boy at that time, we had, you know, the Sony Walkmans with the cassette players.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And if
0: I couldn't find a babysitter, I took him to class with me and we would sit on the back row. He'd listen to his little Walkman and color in his little coloring book. But now Brandon is 38 years old with two kids of his own.
1: (laughs) Good for him. I mean, we talk a lot about accelerated maturity when things happen to you that are out of the ordinary at a younger Mm. age. It sounds like you were directly resultant of that.
0: That's very true. That's very true. I, I had n- not really thought about it like that, but yes, that is exactly what it was because I was focused, disciplined, and and knew I had a responsibility to take care of.
1: I mean, admirable beyond all measure to be able to accomplish all that while raising a baby at that age, <laughs> really extraordinary. It must be rewarding at this point. I mean, we don't like to I mean, it sounds like we're not the kind of people that pat ourselves on the back. We just do what we do because it's the right thing to do. And if we didn't do it, no one would. But Mm -hmm. it really is extraordinary.
0: Yes, I had a really supportive family, though. My mom and uh, my son's father and his family, he he was there. The son's father, even though we didn't marry, he was very supportive. But we were both in college at that time. So he was out of town at college. And so the grandparents really stepped up and helped us out. You know, until we both graduated, and uh, so that helped a lot having that supportive family.
1: And you've always been from—I mean, I'm a coastal elite, as they say, in New York here in my little—you embe- <laughs> uh, know, my little bubble. But you're from rural America, correct?
0: Well, I'm from Arkansas. So is that I considered rural? I'm, I'm, yeah, educate was,
1: I'm, this coastal elite.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so not quite considered rural. Um, definitely a southern and. You know, as everybody knows, when you look at all the, I don't even know what kind of surveys you're looking at, Arkansas is always at the bottom, no matter what it is. <laughs> it's just running neck and neck with Mississippi for <laughs> for whatever. But um, it's not rural. So there, I mean, there's a census definition of rural, meaning that the population has to have, gosh, I think it's less than 20,000 or something like that. So it's definitely Southern, but Little Rock. Is not rural, so I always would tease with my friends who did come from what we call the country, um, <laughs> and tell them I was a city girl. <laughs> now, I'm, not, I'm sure it's nothing compared to New York, though.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it's you know, it's 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 not better or worse. It's it's different. It's a very different culture, and you gain appreciation for it if you have to experience it. And people that kind of live in their bubble don't get to experience these things. So you. It's really good for the soul to understand that there's more than just New Jersey.
0: True, true. Now I'll say this. I've been to New York. Have you been to Little Rock?
1: (laughs) You know, I was just, my my daughter's a huge fan of like geography and maps. And we were just talking a couple of weeks ago. What are some of the states I've not visited yet in my life? And there's only four. There's Alaska, Hawaii, Idaho, and Arkansas. Those are the four (laughs) states I've never been to.
0: Oh wow! Okay. Well, that sounds doable, though, to complete that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's like a little puzzle piece. I mean, honestly, I'd rather go to Arkansas than Alaska and Hawaii because it's easier. I'm not a big fan <laughs> of long flights.
0: Yeah. Well, they'll they'll treat you well in Arkansas. That ho- hospitality yeah. is true.
1: Oh, by all means, I have friends in like in like deep Georgia. And it's very different than going to Atlanta. So mm-hmm. it, it's, you, you really gain like a critical thinking component to that. It isn't just about the people you're surrounded by with whom you grew up. And, you know, I've been doing advocacy for a very long time, and this isn't about the 20% of people that have access to Sloan Kettering. This is about all of us and how do mm. we know things exist? And I, I want to get into this with you. But I think it's important to let the listeners know the current state of pharmacy in this country is what?
0: So the current state of pharmacy, I will say. Um, maybe a little removed since I have practiced on an as needed basis, but not regularly um, recently. But the state of pharmacy is mixed in with the state of healthcare in general. So there are a bunch of good things that are going on, but there are a bunch of, um, you know, things that need improvement. So there are, you know, advances in the practice of pharmacy, and just as you know, we've seen kind of nurse practitioners and other people step up to kind of fill in some of those roles. You know, I think pharmacists, as everybody knows was on the forefront of the immunizations with COVID and people being able to access that care on the, you know, really kind of on the front line at their neighborhood pharmacy. Um, You had pharmacists that were going out and doing clinics at an employer's sites, going to nursing homes, et cetera, to help in kind of that vaccination effort. But you have pharmacists in a hospital setting that can, you know, adjust dosages of medication, under a physician's guidance, but they do it per protocol, meaning that they have the ability, if a drug level comes in and it's not in the right place, they go ahead, adjust it, write that order, dispense the, you know, new medication at whatever the right interval is. So it's in a good place, but one of the things that we're seeing in healthcare overall is just kind of the people being burned out and not enough staff and things of that nature that really I see impacting pharmacists, pharmacy technicians. You see it in the nursing and even in physicians as well, though.
1: Well, you answered my next seven questions, but I think the reason (laughs) I asked in the first place was that there is a bifurcation in terms of these are human beings that are probably the most trusted. I think the data really is that they are the most trusted arbiters in healthcare, but oftentimes they don't get to really practice being independent and capable of having those human conversations anymore because of the nature of... I don't know, entrepreneurship and business, corporate America. And yet, time and again, you know, more and more people seem to be almost reverse flocking back to the way it used to be and choosing to go back to their independent pharmacist because maybe we're getting more aware of the fact that we're not getting what we need and there's more value to the personal touch. That the that what are the the baristas of healthcare are the
0: pharmacists, right? <laughs> they are definitely one of the most trusted. I mean, we still see that. I remember when I was in pharmacy school and seeing these Gallup poll surveys that pharmacists were one of the most trusted healthcare professionals, and that still is true in polls today. That I guess because pharmacists are accessible, you know, you can. Go down the street to um, your local pharmacy and have the ability, if they're, if they're not too busy to come talk to you <laughs> or too swamped because they're short staffed, to be able to ask them questions about what's going on with you, get their recommendation, you know, as a healthcare professional on how you might go forward with a particular um, health problem that you may be facing. So they're, they're right there.
1: Yeah, I don't have the study here. I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes. But more Americans than ever are trying to get better decision-making through empathy Mm. and appreciation for who they are as a person. And they're not getting that level of individualism and empowerment from maybe some of the big buck groups without painting it with a broad brush. And something as simple as like coupon codes and knowing that there's – you can save money and knowing who your manufacturer is. That's not something the the average human would know about. Right. But being being that trusted arbiter – of decision-making and empathy, which is what I give pharmacists all the credit in the world for all of that. And it's like, there's almost like an economic cost savings to the average American. You could save money by actually going to a pharmacist that knows how to talk to you about these things where it may be either incentivized or disincentivized elsewhere.
0: Right, exactly. Even as busy as we are and they are, and again, I see that throughout many disciplines, in healthcare, care, just that desire and willingness to help that patient and in whatever way you can, whether it's providing them with a discount code, whether it's providing them with another alternative or, you know, trying to navigate the insurance company for them or whatever prior authorization criteria, all of that. Yes, they're willing to step up and do it
1: it's, you know, we joke about baristas, it's really more the sommeliers in a sense. They know exactly what's right for you. How do you pair this with that? And, you know, we're going to get the trials in the second part of the, of the show, but I, I just can't exalt enough the virtues of Americans wanting to trust who's helping them make decisions and who better than your pharmacist. But you pointed out there's burnout, there's shortages, we're trying to make up for different things that shouldn't be a thing anymore. And was COVID perhaps the great reveal to America that these are the people you should be trusting?
0: COVID was a great reveal for many, many things. We you know you oh, kind yes. of alluded to the clinical trials coming up, but yes, COVID really revealed the value of pharmacists in our healthcare system. And if it had not been for registered pharmacists out there doing everything that they were doing, I don't know where we would be within the pandemic right now. I mean, there were heroic efforts made in just the vaccination, the immunization uh, initiatives that were going on and making pharmacists, I mean, chain pharmacists, independent pharmacies, all types of pharmacies, really a key part of that. In the midst of everything else that was going on.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, and and we're cheering all the doctors and nurses, but we weren't cheering the pharmacists. I I don't like the fact that it kind of got lost in the wayside, that they're just as integral into what's happening to every American every day as anyone else that's first line.
0: That's true. I guess people don't think about pharmacists that much. Maybe they're not the sexy healthcare professionals, you know, like a doctor or something, a medical doctor, but (laughs) they are definitely, definitely an integral part of that. I mean, imagine, imagine the world without them. (laughs) And then you really kind of begin to see (laughs) the value that pharmacists have. And I'm proud to be one of that group.
1: (laughs) And you've got a fanboy right here. All right, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with uh, Dr. Edelisa Martin.
2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: I want to point out to the listeners uh, something I read in your credentials, that you are a first-generation college graduate the first African-American to receive a doctor of pharmacy degree from the University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy. And you're awarded the University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy's Sandoz Pharmaceutical Corporation Award for superior academic achievement in your doctor of pharmacy program. That's no short, that's (laughs) no small beans right there. That's a big deal.
0: Now you're embarrassing me. You had me pegged when you said I'm one of those people that, you know, really don't talk a lot about myself. <laughs> um, but yes, that is, that is true. All of that is true. Even though, you know, my dad was a carpenter and my mom, she was a nurse, a licensed vocational nurse. So she didn't go to a four-year college or anything like that. She had a, or I guess the LPN, licensed practical nurse at her time. Um, but even... Still, they really, really, really encouraged us to make education important. It turned out, though, that of, of my siblings so far, I'm I'm the only one of the the six who's completed, um, you know, a four year college degree or greater. So we, it, just as generations go on, though, we tend to, you know, bring more and more of our children kind of into. I guess, the importance of a college education and kind of what that can do for you.
1: Well, congratulations. It's kind of a weird thing to say. Congratulations <laughs> on being the first person. But it really is something to be, to be appreciated from the vantage of this country is still a bastion of opportunity for everyone. And like I said, like I'm reading this as someone who just wants to know that there are good things that can still happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, kind of like we spoke about before, I think that motivation, I I do not recommend single motherhood for anyone, um, but that was the position that I found myself in at that time. And I was determined to, you know, accept the responsibility for that and make a good life for me and my child. So that really, as I said, kind of motivated me to really be focused. So I think that kind of Attributed somewhat to you know being able to get that degree, go on to graduate school, you know, be that that first that graduated from the OU PharmD program, and yeah. <laughs> so thank you for that. So,
1: of course. So let's get to your expatriated pharmaceutical career. And what drove you out of the pharmacy? It's like a loaded question. But what what, what, was it like a natural progression to get into the the farmer world and then you found a better path for yourself?
0: Um, Yes, to an extent, you know, in in pharmacy school, you're you have a lot of people have good relationships with their professors. And so, you know, in pharmacy school, I thought I was going to be a college of pharmacy professor. But then as I moved on and saw other things within the world of pharmacy, I mean, because kind of, as you said, I really didn't have anybody that I knew in the profession or somebody that could tell me what the different paths were that I could go. And so I kind of just learned some of those things along the way, you know, not having mentors in my family or Even really in my community or church or anything that I knew were you know was a pharmacist, but as I went on and learned more and more things, and I think part of it was I think I knew out of out of getting my bachelor's degree that I did want to go on and get my doctor of pharmacy right away, so I didn't have any separation between um, starting my bachelor's and going into the doctor of pharmacy program, because I was telling myself that you know I I was a single mother again at the time, and if I started Getting ingrained and buying things and living a different lifestyle, it was going to be hard for me to go back. So I did go ahead and get that doctor of pharmacy degree right away. And then we actually had speakers that would come in from different, I guess, domains within pharmacy that kind of opened my eyes to some things. And so I think at that time, I got interested in the pharmaceutical industry. That wasn't my first job, but I got interested in working in the pharmaceutical industry From some of those seminars and lectures of, um, you know, kind of guest speakers that we had come through and tell us about what they do as a pharmacist. So that kind of planted the seed, even though when I initially graduated, I did work in a hospital pharmacy setting, eventually went to work for an insurance company doing pharmacy benefit management and then made that leap to working for the pharmaceutical industry.
1: Yeah. And you spent 18 years there. So you Mm -hmm. must have learned a lot. And clearly, I mean, for folks like us that remember life before all the regulatory kind of made things better and worse (laughs) at the same time, you must have seen some massive shifts in the way that healthcare policy affected what you could and couldn't do. Um, At the end of the day, maybe a little question, like, what contributed to your desire to exit and start your own venture?
0: Well, coming from a, I guess, somewhat underserved background, you know, you would see what one of my roles within the pharmaceutical industry, um, I spent a lot of time looking at data and being able to kind of digest that and put it in an understandable form to try to talk to people outside of the company about that. And so one of the things that you routinely see, and it became like a running joke, and it probably still is in the industry, is that when you look at clinical trial participants, um, the running joke is that the average participant is a 50-year-old white male that weighs 70 kilograms. And they're normally living on the East Coast or the West Coast or near academic medical center. And so you didn't really see people participating in trials that truly kind of reflected in many disease states, the people that somebody was going to prescribe that drug for when it was approved by the FDA. Um, And we seen, and I'm not going to call out any specific names, but we've seen a couple of, you know, big clinical trials where there would be like a positive outcome, but then when it came to using that drug in a certain subset of the population in black people. And for one study, for instance, there's a a lupus trial that's very famous. Lupus is very prominent in black women, but there were not very many black women in the clinical trial. And the drug had to undergo additional testing because when they started using it in black women, it didn't work the way it did in the clinical trial. Um, But there weren't enough black women in the clinical trial. Um, So that didn't reveal itself until after the drug was already FDA approved. You started prescribing it to black women and it didn't work for them. So um, you begin to see those patterns. And we have actually and I don't don't know if I've shared this before, but we actually have a family member who 20 plus years ago was faced with a devastating illness And we were racking our brains on how we could help her and actually found an NIH clinical trial that she became a part of over 20 years ago. And um, she personally attributes the fact that she was able to get into this trial with saving her life, preserving her family's future, because she was a single mother of three children. And if something had happened to her, her kid's life would have been a wreck. (laughs) um so she con- attributes that participating in the in that trial and she's actually been a long-term follow-up participant in that trial for over 20 years now um and has um done done well with it um but seeing that from a personal perspective and how that made an impact for her seeing that there was not good representation in clinical trials even in disease states where there were you know, where there's a large prevalence or a higher prevalence of that disease in the community, not having that representation, we felt like we could do something about that. I felt like I could do something about that. So that was kind of the kind of gnawing kind of thing that, you know, year after year kind of sits with you and you, you push it down. And um, eventually you're like, OK, I think I can do this.
1: <laughs> can we unpack that blind spot a little bit that? I, I I want to be optimistic about this, but do the drug manufacturers just presume only white men are going to take their drugs or are they aware that this is clearly going to more than just a white guy and they're just unable to recruit diversity into the trials? Or is it really just that myopic? Oops. We were only working on white people and forgot everyone else existed.
0: I think it's a combination of things. You know, when you, even before COVID, you would hear people talk about the fact that they you know, wanted to have good representation in trials, but there was really no incentive for them to do it. Clinical trials, as many of us know, I think most people know, are really, really expensive. There is often a lag time in getting people recruited for clinical trials, um, and they don't meet their deadlines or whatever their goals were. And I don't, you know, some of that could be because their goals were maybe off from the beginning or some of it can be, um, you know, for whatever reason. So then you say, okay, I want this, but there's no incentive. If you don't, there's no, or if you do, and there's no penalty, if you don't, and then your trial starts going over budget and running late, you just want to get people in. (laughs) You just want to, you know, enroll that, However, many number of people. And so you tend to go to those spots, which are usually these academic medical centers, oftentimes really concentrated on the East Coast, West Coast, more so the East and the West. There's actually pretty good presence in Texas as well. Um, but you tend to go to these same spots over and over because you've had success there before. But a lot of times these academic medical centers are they they cater to a lot of times indigent populations, but they also have sometimes biases, um, thinking that, you know, this certain type of person won't participate or this certain type of person would not be interested. And so a lot of times you find that people of color have not even been asked to participate because of biases that may persist. And so I think it's in, in their heart, they kind of want it to, but when it comes down to the finances, you just got to get her done, um, <laughs> and take whoever you can right. get. Um, and so, I think that is kind of part of it as well. I think that might change some now because we do have the new FDA diversity plans that are going to be a requirement for every new every new protocol that is submitted to the FDA especially like for the phase three. And I don't know how much you know about the different, I, I'm sure you know about the different phases of the clinical trials. Um, but yes, so it's going to yes, be yes, a requirement. Yes. Um, it's not in place right now, but in the next you know year or so, it's going to be a requirement. I think we talked about COVID shedding a light on many things. And I think that was one of the things that COVID, I don't think it shed a light on healthcare disparity because we know that exists and has existed forever. Um, but it focused more of it on the need to have good representation in the clinical trials because you saw a lot of news stories about trying to get Hispanic and African American people in the COVID vaccine clinical trials. Um, and I really hadn't heard that before that time.
1: Well, that's a good segue to wrap up with what you're working on now. You've turned your passion into purpose and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You're now the owner and CEO of your own venture, the uh, M&B Sciences Inc., which is a, you know just a name, but there's a lot behind that name. Can you spend just a few minutes explaining what you're doing and maybe end with a success story?
0: Okay. Well, we do patient recruitment for clinical trials, and we, we know that it's a, a, tough, a tough thing. So we are really kind of tackling it from many ways. Part of what we do is focus groups and getting out there and talking to people, and so we know for a fact that there are many people with diverse backgrounds um, and diverse groups that are willing to participate in clinical trials. But for the most part, and we've had it, heard it firsthand ourselves, they're not asked to participate. So we we know that there's you know some historical baggage with clinical trials and you know black people, people of color kind of um, vulnerable people, people in prisons, uh, mentally disabled, et cetera, we know that there's some baggage there. But as time has gone on, um, we've, we've got to get the healthcare providers not to have that baggage in their head and make an opinion about what a person is going to say before you even ask them. Um, so we talk to people and they are willing to participate in clinical trials. If they can find one that fits their particular disease state, and if somebody would inform them and ask them about it. So that's part of the work we're doing, trying to, you know, kind of see what the real people are saying. So we work with sponsors to recruit for clinical trials. We've created a mobile app that hopefully will make searching for clinical trials for people interested. It's called the Neighborhood Trials app. Um, where people can download that. And of course, location is enabled and you can put in your disease state and search for trials and see what's near you. So hence kind of the neighborhood effect there. Um, So uh, working through that app, but then we also utilize data science. We utilize a science called spatial epidemiology. Not going to get too technical, but that's just looking at the so kind of laying out the demographics at every census tract level, you know, what percentage of the people, white, black, Hispanic, what's the age, what's the the um, socioeconomic, you know, what's the average income, housing, et cetera. So that is a layer. And then adding on other layers of data as it fits with that particular disease. So we may have the incidence of diabetes in a particular zip code or the incidence of smoking or you know, the, the, the incidence of obesity or what have you. And then we can stack that on with where the healthcare providers are, whether they're doctors or pharmacies or infusion centers or what have you, whatever it is for that particular disease. So really to help kind of make informed decisions on kind of a recruitment strategy, but definitely having that kind of baseline data of knowing where your diverse populations are and then we believe it's really important to work with community organizations who are already serving those patients and 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 I guess kind of constituents or potential participants because they know what their the people in their organization, you know, what they are already facing. They have the trust of those people. So we actually have relationships with hundreds of community organizations, but we can leverage that to partner with other community organizations if we need to for kind of a new, if we need it to for a new disease state or what have you. But it really kind of alienates people sometimes if you only use, so we see people out there using the digital and social media channels and all of that. Well, sometimes you unintentionally leave out people when you only focus on one way of doing things. So when you have some of the underserved people that may not have smartphones, I mean, you have some of the population and you may be aware of it where you might be able to get these flip phones that are subsidized if you have Medicaid. Well, that's not you're not going to be doing a lot of surfing on Instagram and have social media ads pop up and that kind of thing on a flip phone. Um, So working with these communities, whether they're faith based organizations or educational or housing organizations, or they could be disease state organizations that are serving the people. So we kind of use a combined approach because there's no one-size-fits-all approach that's going to meet every need. So that, that's kind of what we do.
1: <laughs> I love it. We're all trying to chip at the dam and plug the holes we can.
0: <laughs> exactly. I really
1: want to thank you for – yeah, I mean, thank you for coming on the show because this is an incredible story, an incredible achievement. You know, we must make the most of the time that's been given to us, and I mm. think you are embodying that. So, well, so are um, you. Doctor. <laughs> yes, so are you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Dr. Adelisa Martin, Farm D, owner and CEO at M&B Sciences. I'd like to do a shout out to uh, the Chaser for connecting us and uh, bringing this stuff together. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show.
0: Well, I appreciate the opportunity and I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank you.
1: Out of patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us. And we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit Offscript.com. That's Offscript, no t, dot com.